0: Hello and welcome to South Asia Chat, brought to you by the Institute of South Asian Studies at the National University of Singapore. I'm your host, Rona Joy Sen, Senior Research Fellow at the Institute. On March 10th, the results to elections in five Indian states were announced. Much of the attention was naturally focused on Uttar Pradesh, or UP, the largest and most populous state in India, which sends 80 members to Indian Parliament, and where the Bharatiya Janata Party, or the BJP, was incumbent. The BJP stormed back to power, although it saw a decline in seats from 312 in 2017 to 255 out of 403 seats in 2022. The election was largely a bipolar contest between the BJP and the Samajwadi Party or the SP, with the latter on its own winning 111 seats and fairly dramatically increasing its vote share by nearly 10 percentage points to 32% of the vote share. However, that was not enough to bring the SP and its allies anywhere close to the majority mark. To discuss the election results and its implications, we have with us Dr. Nilanjan Sarkar for what is the first of two podcasts with different experts on the recently held assembly elections. Nilanjan is a senior visiting fellow at CPR or the Center for Policy Research in Delhi. His research interests include Indian political economy, and comparative political behavior. Nilanjan's recent work has focused on state-level elections in India through both data work and ethnographic methods. He also works on projects characterizing the social connections between citizens in India and the local brokers and leaders, as well as how these local brokers and leaders, both rural and urban, make decisions. Nilanjan is also a non-resident fellow at the Center for the Advanced Study of India at the University of Pennsylvania. He received a bachelor's degree in applied mathematics and economics from UC Berkeley and a PhD in political science from Columbia University. Nilanjan was also in UP during the election campaign and traveled extensively. So we hope to gain both theoretical as well as on the ground insights from him. Thank you Nilanjan for joining us today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Right. So one of the narratives in explaining the Uttar Pradesh verdict is that it represented a fundamental shift in Indian politics. And you too have written about how there was a perceptible shift in electoral behavior, which could be attributed to welfare delivery. Indeed, welfare services uh, has been identified as one of the main reasons for the BJP's victory. Your thoughts on that?
1: So uh, before we begin getting into the details of this, I want to first, start by describing an empirical phenomenon that we're seeing in the data, and then explain how it connects to this question uh, because it'll structure much of our discussion. Right. So we can define urban and rural areas in uh, UP in many ways. Um, One definition that I have used is that if the uh, land mass in an assembly constituency is less than 40% rural, then I'll consider it urban or urban-ish. And if it's more than 40%, then I'll, I'll consider it rural. You can use any cutoff that you want. Now, what you see is that in 2017, when the BSP, the third party led by Mayavati, was still a large player, the gap between the alliance for the Samadradi Party, in, in the Samadradi Party was allied with the Congress Party in 2017, uh, and the BJP, was approximately uh, uh, 13 percentage points, a little over 13 percentage points, whether we looked at rural or urban areas. Right. This time, the vote share has entered in quite unevenly for the Samajwadi Party Alliance, this time allied with much smaller parties, uh, the uh, RLD uh, in, in Western UP, SBSP in Eastern UP, and Uh, one of the factions of Aqnada. Each of these parties corresponds to a small caste-based party in UP. What you actually end up seeing is that in urban areas, the margin of victory between the NDA, the BJP's alliance, and the Samajwadi party's alliance did not change very much. It's still over 11 percentage points. In rural areas, it has come down to 5.5 percentage points. Okay? So one argument that one might use to understand the effect of welfare benefits is that it is an affirmative reason, right? It is the basis, it is the issue upon which I make a decision to vote for the BJP or the Samadhrit Party or the BSP. Now, we're not finding a huge amount of evidence for that, because if that were the case, then you wouldn't have seen this kind of rural-urban distinction. Indeed, another... uh, Another narrative in this election was that economic anxieties over jobs uh, were causing anti-incumbency for the BJP. If that were the case, you wouldn't have you would have seen more of a drop in urban areas than rural areas. The other way to think about what welfare benefits are doing, and it's something I've written about quite a bit, is that it builds into an image of Narendra Modi as the key political leader and the leader who can protect the average citizen. So if we go back and look at what the way in which welfare delivery was branded and the kinds of comments we heard, who has given you welfare benefits? Modi has given it. Modi is looking after us. Modi has made sure that we haven't uh, suffered any more than, than than we already have. It is this branding around Modi that was crucial to what the welfare benefits were doing. So what we do find is that the BJP's vote hasn't really dropped in rural areas. What has happened is that a lot of the frustrations, a lot of those voters have come behind the Samajwadi party. So rather than welfare being an affirmative reason to vote for the BJP over the Samajwadi party, welfare is best thought of as the reason to continue voting for the BJP because I associate it with Modi. And so this is a crucial distinction to make when thinking about what has happened in UP. The BJP already had a huge vote share advantage. It was already in the poll position. Mm -hmm. Its job was to make sure that voters didn't leave its party. It didn't have to sway any new voters into the fold, right? And so that's why welfare benefits were so important, right? Because it made sure it built its popularity around Narendra Modi, and it made sure it said, look, if you leave us, you are leaving the person who has protected you over all of these years. Mm. That was the core uh, political appeal that was made in UP. Right,
0: right. No, that, that's fascinating. Um, so, you know, another narrative that's been uh, circulating is that you know, caste is no longer so relevant in, in UP as well as uh, in the heartland politics. And this is something that the BJP and even Prime Minister Modi, you uh, know, during his uh, victory speech, was emphasizing on. But do you think that's misreading the UP result and Indian politics in the heartland in general?
1: So I think there are two plausible logics for thinking about how caste identity works vis-a-vis voting and we need to distinguish between them. So the first argument is that it's a purely an identity-based vote, that I have a certain dignity that I associate with my caste community like let's just say the JAT community in Western UP. If uh, I feel that my identity has been infumed, then I will vote against you. If I believe that you are doing something for my identity group, then I will vote for you. The second logic is a political economy logic, right? That insofar as a core identity-based uh, philosophical reason to vote for my caste that may not exist but Mm -hmm. if benefits are disproportionately distributed through people of my own caste identity in my village local caste leaders then effectively I have to vote for people of my caste group in order to get those benefits now the former explanation still broadly holds I think people do care about caste dignity they do care about representation of their community more generally But it's the latter explanation, the local political economy explanation, where things have changed very significantly on the ground. Because of new technology, because of the way in which direct benefit transfers are done today, essentially coming from the top political leader to directly into people's bank accounts, they've essentially cut out the middleman in all senses, including caste intermediaries. And so what this means is that when we were talking about the kinds of narratives around wealth, had it been a decade ago, Mm. those narratives about welfare would still be about local caste intermediaries. Today, that narrative about welfare is disproportionately about the leader at the top. And this isn't just about Modi. This is a phenomenon that we've seen with Nitish Kumar in Bihar. This is a a phenomenon we've seen with Momotab Energy in Bengal. This method of centralizing welfare delivery and branding around it has fundamentally changed the way in which the political economy around caste and welfare benefits works
0: right although uh, you know, just to digress a bit uh, in in West Bengal and uh, Bihar which is mentioned the uh, you know the the benefits of, of welfare is uh, usually ascribed to Either say mamata or Nitish Kumar, rather than Modi, would you agree? That's correct. That's correct.
1: And I think one of the larger questions that we do have, right, is that there are certain kinds of political leaders. Nitish Kumar will leave leave to the side for a second because his case is a little more complicated. He's been facing a lot of anti-incumbency. Right. right. But take Mamata. Take Arvind Kejriwal. These are leaders. A pro-poor image, an image of delivery, either on infrastructure like health and education or on direct benefits, but without an explicit identity-based, uh, uh, without a, uh, explicit identity basis for that delivery. Right? It's universalistic in nature. We right. see that these kinds of state parties have actually done quite well against the BJP in state-wise competition. Right? Mm-hmm. Whereas. The Samajwadi Party, which, by the way, people in UP do still believe did a fairly good job of distributing Akhilesh Yadav is associated with spring laptops, scholarships. Sure. Uh, but the overall narrative of the Samajwadi Party is as a, as a caste-based party. It mm-hmm. is not universal universalistic in nature. The BJP is very good at counter-mobilizing against a party like that. It has had a harder time. Uh, mobilizing against these sort of universalistic, universalistic welfarist parties.
0: Right, right. Yeah, very interesting. Another view that's been quite prevalent is that religious polarization was not a factor in the UP election verdict, despite you know, we've seen throughout the campaign and particularly statements by Adithanat, um, you know, most famously this 80-20 remark, etc. So do you agree that religious polarization was uh, not a factor or, or at best uh, uh, sort of a minimal factor in the, in the election verdict?
1: See, the way that I think about this is that we have understood uh, communalism, Hindu-Muslim polarization, as a larger social phenomenon in India for quite some time. And we understand at certain times, it finds its way into the political arena, uh, often for uh, electoral purposes, for uh, gaining vote for the BJP, but it can be for a number of reasons. Right. So the question that we should be asking in terms of whether it is determinative of the vote is not whether uh, we have seen an increase in Hindu-Muslim polarization on the ground more generally, in which I would say very clearly we have. I've been traveling to UP over the last decade. It's very noticeable what Yogi Adityanath's government has done vis-a-vis the Muslim co- uh, community. The question that we should be asking, if it is determinative of the vote, is in areas in which we are seeing large numbers of Hindus and Muslims, are we seeing a discernible shift um, towards either the BJP or against the BJP. And if you look at the data, the final phase, phase seven, the area on Varanasi, an area that actually does not have in aggregate a very high percentage of uh, Muslims. As you move east, you see lower percentages of Muslims. Right. This actually has been the very worst phase for the NDA and the BJP. They won 50% of the seats, right? 50% actually went to the Samajwadi Party Alliance. Right? And so... Uh, this is sort of evidence that there's something a little more complicated going on. Mm. Where there's been a lot of Hindu-Muslim polarization in and around Muzaffar Nagar, in Western UP, In the first two phases of this election, I think it is still very much a factor in Indian cities, uh, not just in UP, it is very much a factor. But as we move east, we see a more complicated strategy that the BJP has used in order to build its coalition. We've talked about welfareism. We've talked about building complicated alliances across castes. Even in these were, 2017, these were very much in play. Just one final point on this. This is not actually a deviation for our, from our more general understanding of how a Hindu vote uh, mobilizes. So there's been a lot of work, most notably by Tariq Tachil, about how the RSS and local organizations associated with Hindu fundamentalism and Hindu nationalism actually spread its wings into poorer communities through service and welfare, right? Um, So it is is a fairly old strategy to build connections on material means between political leaders and voters as a gateway to the Hindu vote. Um, And I think it's still the phenomenon that we are seeing today. Right,
0: right. That's great. Um, so my next question is, you know, there were two uh, you know, important or significant pre-election events. One was, of course, the COVID-19 catastrophe, and UP was particularly uh, badly. hit. And then there was a farmer's agitation, uh, which, you know, much of it was, you know, of course, was centered in Punjab, but also in Western UP. Both these events did not seem to have had that much of an impact um, on the UP verdict, you know, while the farmer of course, did impact the electoral outcome in parts of western UP, the, the COVID nightmare seemed to have been forgotten. So, why do you think this was so? So, uh,
1: I what I would say is that uh, neither the farmers' protest nor the COVID emergency in India seem to have a direct electoral impact um, in UP. That is correct. With the exception of a small area in Western UP where you do see that the RLD Samadradi Party Alliance, exactly the place that was sending the most farmers to the farmers' protest, there the SP RLD Alliance has actually done very well. However, what I would say is that the larger economic distress that was A, caused by the COVID crisis right. and B, brought to the fore by the farmers' protest became influential in shaping the narratives of the campaigns and also the sets of strategies the parties used. Right. So the fact that the BJP had to rely so heavily on uh, advertising and campaigning around welfareism and ration was a direct response to the larger economic anxieties in society. Mm. So I think the irrespective of the election outcome, the one thing that every single one of us who traveled in the field saw is an extraordinary level of economic anxiety and anger around those economic anxieties. Mm. And all parties were trying to uh, either make promises or mitigate in various ways. um, so in that way, the larger economic uh, malaise in India and the frustrations that uh, that have percolated down to society, um, that are partially caused by the COVID crisis and the farm and what the farmers' protest was bringing to the fore, mm-hmm. I think those were important. But yes, it is true that the direct impact was 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 very minimal.
0: Right. So do you think that, you know, uh, with regard to COVID, do you think that, you know, the, both the state government as well as at the central level, the BJP, was able to deflect the, you know, the blame on, on what happened on the ground, you know, the complete collapse of, of, of the state and health machinery, it was somehow able to deflect the blame from them onto maybe sort of, I don't know what, larger forces of nature, you know, something that, you know, everyone across the world suffered from? Do you think there was a sense of that when you talked to people on the ground?
1: I I think so. I mean, I I, I think that it's a function of two things. Uh, The inability of opposition parties to very carefully mobilize around it. I mean, part of the challenge here is that two of the strongest opposition voices in Arvind Kejival and Momota Banerjee also had to deal with COVID crises of their own in their states. Sure. And so the political attribution of state versus center it becomes complicated in those cases, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but the second thing is that uh, without a sustained political mobilization around COVID, Unlike what we saw with the farmers, Hmm. it was very hard for it to ever emerge as a core political issue in the electorate, right? Um, And given the BJP's advantages in reaching the voter, both through social media, digital means, and just physical presence, uh, the ability to turn that narrative either in favor of the BJP or simply make sure that it didn't have much of an impact, um, it really sort of put the cards in the BJP's hand, which they took advantage of.
0: Right, right. Okay, so let me just head into the, the, the final sort of couple of questions. You know, the UP election as well as the other four states have been sort of touted, you know, particularly by the the news media, as a semi-final, of course, the reference being to the final in the national elections in 2024. Do you agree with that? And also, do you think, you know, what is the assessment of what the UP verdict does to the stature of Adithana? in the BJP hierarchy, looking ahead to both 2024, as well as, you know, further down the road?
1: So we take the first question
0: um, first,
1: right? So uh, we have known, uh, especially since 2014, we have seen an extraordinary disjuncture between state elections and national elections. So it would be foolhardy to look only at state elections and try to make claims about what is happening or what will happen at at the national level. That being said, there's one core lesson that does come from this. In a number of the states, in four of the states where the BJP has formed the government, uh, we were talking about, uh, in three of them we were talking about BJP versus Congress contests. And the BJP was not only relying on local forces, but it was also relying on the image of Prime Minister Modi. What we know from the 2014 and 2019 national elections is at the national level, when the BJP and the Congress have gone head-to-head, the the BJP has had a strike rate of more than 90%. Hmm. More than 90% of the time, the BJP has won head-to-head against the Congress at the national level. The question we have today is that as the BJP is often projecting uh, and building elections around the prime minister, and as the BJP in national politics has developed such a large advantage vis-a-vis the Congress. Hmm. Are we starting to see the kind of dominance the BJP has over the Congress at the national level percolating to the state? We didn't see it a few years ago in states like Madhya Pradesh, Chhattisgarh, Rajasthan, right? Right. Uh, But maybe now we will see in in the coming year whether the BJP has consolidated uh, to a greater extent um, vis-a-vis the Congress. And so that way I would say that there is a national. The second question is one about Yogi Adityanath and his stature. Now, purely as somebody who has empirically looked at the data, um, I would say that Yogi Adityanath wasn't the net positive for the BJP that he would like to have been. Mm -hmm. That being said, we do know that Yogi Adityanath has been very effective at centralizing power and advertising around himself not unlike Modi now and, cert- and and in some ways not unlike Modi when he was chief minister of Gujarat. Right. What we don't know is what the internal dynamics within the BJP are. Hmm. During the victory speech after the results, Modi barely made mention of Yogi Adityanath. He made mention of himself and welfare schemes. Right. right. Um, and so this... It strikes me that there are still larger equations to be figured out within the BJP and how Yogi Adityanath fits into them. Um, It's not clear to me that his brand of sort of aggressive Hindu-Muslim polarization without a softer side, which was all given to Modi, is a winning strategy um, against especially the new oppositions of Arvind Kejriwal and Mamata Banerjee. And so part of what Yogi Adityanath will have to cultivate if he wants to become a national leader on par with Modi or second to Narendra Modi is that softer side, the ability to deliver and not just be seen as an aggressive character, aggressive on Hindu-Muslim polarization, aggressive on quote-unquote law and order, um, but a more general sort of provider for the people.
0: Right. Great. I think we've uh, pretty much run out of time. So thank you, Niranjan, for those fascinating insights and looking forward to talking to you again very soon on UP and Indian politics. You were listening to South Asia Chat. If you wish to learn more about our work, visit us at isas.nus.edu.sg.